Well, they've allocated to me the topic, preaching well, and it's not lost on me that this is the session then when you talk to experts about their field of expertise. (laughs) So in case you're thinking, who is this guy? As I'm sure many of you are, let me put your minds at ease. My sermon has three points. Each of those points begins with the same letter, (laughs) and I have placed deftly in the sermon a quote from Spurgeon. (laughs) Don't worry, brothers and sisters, the conference organizers who they'd ask to do this talk, they knew what they were doing. Don't you worry. We're in safe hands. I'm grateful for the opportunity, uh, and I'm pleased that they didn't suggest I would need a translator. So... (laughs) Let's dive in. The session title, Preaching Well, is an obvious choice given the text that we've come to in our journey through to Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, because it contains that well-known charge, beloved of the pastor's ordination service. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. When I graduated seminary, my wife had that verse put on a framed picture, and it hangs outside my study. And when I finish my prep on a Sunday morning as I walk out, it reminds me of the charge before me each Lord's Day. Don't worry, it doesn't have a picture of a river and uh, all of that with a nice Scripture reference, and, you know, those. it's not cheesy. But it's important, I think, for us to see uh, that those verses come in the wider context of the section. Uh, And if you're using the little notebook, it's page 32, that whole section uh, goes together. It is a wider exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the fearful Pastor Timothy. And if we will genuinely preach well, if we will have effective preaching ministries, we need to consider this whole section. Because, you see, preaching well is not just about the act of preaching itself. Paul tells Timothy it concerns the heart and the mind of the preacher as well. You see, he's given Timothy in chapter 3 the profile of the false teacher, the sort of false teacher who he should expect to see in Ephesus in his ministry, those who have wandered away from the truth, those who, chapter 3, verse 8, oppose the truth of the gospel and are harming the witness of the church. And Paul then contrasts that. He said, this is what they are like. And then he sets up the contrast of what faithful leadership will involve. They are like this, but verse 10, you, however. Again, verse 13, evil people, they'll go from bad to worse. Verse 14, but as for you, chapter 4, verse 4, people will reject the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5, as for you. Timothy is to be different. He's to be his His preaching ministry is to be different. If he will preach well, it has to be different from the other preaching that's going on around him. And what that will involve, Paul says, is actually persevering in a framework of ministry that he's already been following. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching. Verse 14, continue in what you've learned. It's a framework that he's already been implementing in his ministry. Paul is essentially saying to him, keep going. And keep going with this framework that is based around three convictions. 
of his preaching ministry in Ephesus, with all of the opposition that we've heard about this week from the outside, all of the confusion that's going on amongst those who name the name of Christ, if he will preach well, Paul reminds him of a model to follow, material to use, and a method to employ. I told you, it's okay. Three M's. First one, his model his model. Paul refers to his own ministry as an example. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He mentions nine aspects of his life and ministry. Now, Paul is not blowing his own trumpet when he does that. What he's doing is seeking to encourage Timothy with his example of faithfulness. He's saying, look, it is possible to be faithful in a hostile context. Timothy has listened to Paul's teaching. He's seen Paul's behavior up close. He's been with him. He's he's watched his mentor. But Paul especially highlights his suffering. And he refers to what happened when Timothy first met him on his missionary journeys back in Acts 13 and 14. In these areas, when uh, we read in Acts 13 and 14 of the gospel going out, initially the gospel was well received by some, but the tide quickly turned against Paul. He was kicked out of the Antioch region, and in Iconium, he and Barnabas were the subject of a plot to stone them. And then in Lystra, Paul was stoned, he was dragged outside the city, and he was left for dead. You saw my persecutions and sufferings, Timothy. But he says, the Lord rescued him from them all. But the point is, Timothy, as he said, actually, back in chapter 14 of Acts, uh, Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Timothy, the model that you will follow is one of suffering. Trials in ministry are inevitable. See, I think when the work is hard for us, we think that something has gone wrong. Our temptation when things are difficult is to think that, well, we're surprised when things are difficult. It shouldn't be that way. And Timothy must remember this. He has already modeled his ministry on the apostles' example, but Paul wants him to keep going. Keep going, Timothy, especially as the model of the false teachers is the complete opposite. Their message is one of heaven now. You can have it all in the present. Their lives will reflect that. Remember, Paul described them, chapter 3, as lovers of self and lovers of comfort. It's often that way with false teachers. They look impressive. They often sound impressive because that is what appeals to people. People want to be seen with and follow and identify with impressive people. But Paul makes it clear that the New Testament model for ministry is one of suffering. So let me ask you, have you settled that in your heart? Have you settled it in your mind and in your heart that there will be a cost involved if you will guard the good deposit of the gospel, if you will rightly handle the word of truth, if you will preach the word? You won't proclaim the sacred writings well if you are thrown off course by persecution and suffering. And you need to model this as well for the sake of your church. 
You need to know it yourself in your own experience, but you need to model responding to this persecution and suffering well for the sake of your church, because verse 12, it's going to be part of life for any true disciple of Jesus Christ. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people, they'll go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The imposters, Paul says, he described those who had the appearance of godliness but denying its power, they will go from bad to worse. They'll just keep going in all of their error. The disciple of Jesus, however, he'll be persecuted. She'll be persecuted. Pastors and flock, all of us will face persecution. Settle it in your mind. Settle it in your heart. You know what this is like. Many of you have been doing the work for longer than me. You know what it's like. I came across um, a good example of this recently on social media. Some of you may know the Scottish minister, David Robertson. Uh, he has quite a, a high profile online. He ministered in Scotland. He has just moved to Australia. And uh, on his Instagram, he took a photograph of the plane in the airport. And he simply, something like what he said, simply farewell, dot, dot, dot. That was him. He was emigrating, uh, and um, he was saying goodbye. And a comment, a couple down on his Instagram, said this, "'Not came across you before. What a repulsive little man you are, by the sounds of it. Gone spew your Bible elsewhere.'" We need a Scottish accent for it, I think. "'Gone spew your Bible, your Bible elsewhere,' kind of thing. <laughs> "'Good riddance!' and don't feel the need to come back. It's interesting. Farewell. I've not come across you before. We don't have a relationship. I don't know you, but you're a repulsive little man. <laughs> Go and spew your bile elsewhere. Persecution is part and parcel of life in Christ. And why is that the case? Do you not find yourself asking that? You read it and you say, well, it's clear. It's obvious. But why is that the case? Well, because as Paul has already said back in chapter 2, verse 8, Christ is the Savior who had to die before He rose again. He is the King who took up the cross. And so just as suffering and persecution were His experience, so it will be for all who will follow Him. All, verse 12, who are in Christ Jesus. As it was for Him, so it is for all of us who are in Him. Preacher's model is suffering because it is Christ's model. Then Paul highlights the second conviction Timothy must hold, and it's this, his material. You need to have a conviction about the material that you use. So verse 13, false teachers, they're hearers, they'll circle the drain of deceit. Timothy, however, must hold the line, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Theological novelty always gains some traction with some people, especially when the old, old story of Christ and Him crucified is precisely that, old and old, passe. It's out of place in our fast-moving culture. And the stand-up comedians get a great laugh. It's a cracking laugh when the comedian says something like, well, I used to believe that science explained everything, and then, you know, I came across this old dusty book, 
and everybody chortles away and thinks that it's hilarious because that's what the culture thinks. What has an ancient text got to teach enlightened people like us? Or increasingly in our day, certainly in my city where I am, it's not that this book is just old and irrelevant, it is regressive and dangerous. When people aren't laughing, people are trying to silence us. And what happens when the culture thinks that way? The temptation, the pressure to step away from God's Word is significant. Timothy, he must continue with what he's learned and firmly believed. Do you see? Remember how those who were led astray back in chapter 3, he describes being led astray in their error as always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They never settled their convictions, and so they get led into error. Timothy, however, has settled his convictions long ago, and Paul reminds him to hold fast to the same pattern of sound words, the same good deposit of the gospel of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel right back at the very beginning, verse 1 and 2 of the book. You're a herald of the gospel, which is life that is in Christ Jesus. In a dying world, you have a message of life. Hold fast to that because there is no life elsewhere. This timeless gospel of grace and mercy from the sacred Scriptures that was taught to Timothy at his mother's breast and that he was trained in by the Apostle Paul. It is the message and the only message which makes people wise for salvation, the life that is in Christ Jesus. That must be the material on which he bases his whole ministry. And then he explains why it's the case. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We usually think this verse is describing the divine nature of Scripture, its origin, its authority, its God-breathed that comes from Him. But Paul is actually reminding Timothy here of its sufficiency. It's the sufficiency of Scripture for Timothy's ministry. The fact that the material is God-breathed is the reason why it is profitable. Timothy, when you teach it, people hear God's voice. When you need to be reproved, it is God's Word that cultivates that repentance. When people wander into theological error, it is God's Word that corrects. And Timothy, if your church will grow and be trained in righteousness, it is God's Scripture, the God-breathed Scriptures that will bring that growth and training in righteousness about. Friends, the Bible, God's Word, is wholly profitable for the work that God has given us to do. And whilst the Bible equips all people, all of God's people, for godly living, Paul is particularly interested, particularly emphasizing its sufficiency for everything that the pastor will need. He's telling Timothy, you, Timothy, in your pastoral ministry, in your preaching, you need the sufficiency of God's Word. That's what it means by the phrase, the man of God. Uh, The man of God is equipped for every good work. It's not the man and woman of God. It is Paul is echoing here God's appointed leader, his spokesman that is is described in different points throughout Scripture. It's a technical term. 
So it's in Deuteronomy 33, it's used to refer to Moses. In 2 Chronicles 8, to David. In 1 Kings 17, it is the phrase used to describe Elijah. It is God's appointed spokesman that he's referring to here for the task of ministry. So brothers, as you preach, if your ministry will be faithful, your material must be the Word of God. And all of it, do you see? Now, all Scripture, Timothy's case, that was the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is profitable. Do you know that? Do you believe that? All of it is profitable for your pastorate, so don't neglect any of it. How many of you have preached the series through Leviticus, through the book of Numbers? I'm, I'm sure some of you have, but how many of you done it not as a badge of orthodoxy? We believe the Bible, so we're going to go to the really hard bits and make our people grit their teeth all the way through this series because we're Bible people. No, I mean wrestling with it, opening it up so that you can train your people in righteousness and so that the church will grow in these things. Teaching these passages, these books of the Bible, so that it benefits your hearers, not so people go, well, he's a good Bible guy. And the important point here, the important point I think that Paul is trying to press on Timothy in the context that he's in is that the pastor needs to use this material that God has given. See, there are plenty of pastors that talk about being Bible-based or gospel-centered even in as much as they believe that the Bible is true and would even affirm its sufficiency as a doctrine. Do you believe the sufficiency of Scripture? I believe the sufficiency of Scripture, except when you go on a Sunday, you see something quite different. The actual functional ministry that they execute doesn't look like that's the case at all. When the culture presses in, the temptation for pastors like us in here who would put our hands up and say we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, the temptation, can I suggest, for us is not that we don't affirm those, those truths, those doctrines. It is that we stop using it. We don't deny the Bible. We stop using it. And there'll be a drift. It might start with... Uh, Good morning, guys. Good to see you. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11 or whatever it might be. Uh, now, before I get there, can I just say this? And we've got 15 minutes of rambling. Might then go to choosing verses to make your point rather than making the point of the text the point of the sermon. And then it develops further. We just speak in religious cliches. We use, the, we use the, the phrases that we've learned. We use generic spiritual language. And before you know it, the functional authority of the Bible isn't really there. And the problem with that is that none of that teaches, reproves, corrects, or trains in righteousness. And because then the Bible is functionally absent from the ministry, the opposite of verse 17 is the case. Those pastors are incompetent and not equipped for ministry. Paul's instruction to Timothy, his model is suffering. His material is Scripture. And because Paul has taken time to emphasize its sufficiency, only now then does he tell Timothy what to do with it. Brothers, you know, don't you, that if we will preach well, 
we need to have those other convictions settled before it comes to the actual task of opening up the Scriptures. Settle it in your heart that you have a model to follow that is a Christ-shaped model of suffering. Settle it that you are absolutely foursquare establishing your ministry on the Word of God. And then, Timothy, what do you do with the material? Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word. Here's the third conviction. It is his method. His method. How should the pastor treat the Word of God? Okay, you ready? Here's the Spurgeon quote. In 1888, Spurgeon likened God's Word to a lion that has been caged. This quote has been misquoted in loads of different ways. Uh, It's been used for all kinds of things, but this is actually right. (laughs) He likened God's Word to a lion that has been caged for its own protection. So, in order to protect the lion, let's put it in the cage. Spurgeon says this, the Word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. Oh, fools and slow of heart. Open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. If I could just write one sentence. (laughs) Do you ever feel like that when you read Spurgeon? I'm going to go and get a proper job. Come down the stairs. Your wife says, What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to get a proper job. No, darling, you're quite unemployable. Just stick with what you're doing. (laughs) Brothers, at one level, the task before us is simple. It's not easy, but it is straightforward. Open your Bible, proclaim, herald, declare what it says there and call people to follow it no matter what the cost. That's not hard for us to get our minds around, but it is hard to do. So some of us, like Timothy, need to be reminded to keep going. Keep going. And Paul then says how we should keep going. He says, first of all, preach in earnest. In earnest, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Paul makes it clear that Timothy exercises his ministry with God the Father and the Son as his witnesses. Chris Green in his commentary said, his life and ministry are conducted under God's permanent eye. Now when you think about that, surely it casts a seriousness over our work. Now, the preacher's task is analogous to the Old Testament prophet. We speak God's words on God's authority by the power of God's Spirit to accomplish God's ends. That's what we do when we, when we preach the Word. But we do it in God's presence. The reason we gather week by week is so that the people of God will encounter God Himself. So our goal in preaching isn't merely to explain a passage of Scripture. It isn't merely to explain the text and provide some useful applications that may be helpful for the coming week. 
These things will be part of it for sure. But our goal is the opening up of God's Word such that His Spirit creates in the hearts of the hearers an encounter with God Himself. We are drawing people to the living God and the power of His Spirit through His Word. We want to hold up and hold out Christ so that people meet Him in their seats. That can't be done if we treat the sermon lightly. If we think about making our hearers' enjoyment the object of what we're doing. Talking about preaching, Matthew Henry said this, the best of men have need to be awed, A-W-E-D, not awed, O-D-D, awed, A-W-E-D. The best of men have the need to be awed to the discharge of their duty. There's nothing wrong with humor in sermons. The Bible is full of sarcasm, full of wit, but on Sunday morning, your goal is not to have people laughing. You're not a performer on a stage. You're at the desk of God. You're bringing what He has, what he has written. You're taking the letter from His desk to His people. That is a solemn task. We need to bring earnest, frivolous levity, casualness, pretense. They don't belong in the pulpit. They don't belong behind a music stand. They don't belong in the context of the preaching act. We preach in earnest. Second thing he says is we preach in light of the future. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. The day's coming, Timothy, when Christ will appear, His appearing. Every eye will see Him, and He will realize the kingdom that He inaugurated at His first coming. And what that means for Timothy is that the future reaches back into his present-day ministry in two ways. First of all, he's going to have to give an account on that day for the faithfulness of his ministry. It's one of the most terrifying verses in the whole Bible, is it not? If you're a preacher, Hebrews 13, 17, your leaders, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Brothers, well, Paul's making it clear, Timothy's ministry and your ministry, my ministry, all of us who are given this task of being preachers, the worth of our ministry will be seen for what it was on that day. Does that not make you tremble? Standing before the great shepherd of the sheep to give an account for your ministry, does that not make you tremble? It makes me tremble. But knowing that that day is coming, knowing that there is a future certainty that is up ahead should affect the way you think about your preaching. You will preach well now if you allow the shadow of that day to cover your life and your ministry. Second implication of Christ's future appearing is the judgment that, will, that it will bring. Let me remind you of something that you already know. Every man and woman and boy and girl will one day stand before the living God. And part of your job, preacher, is to prepare them for that encounter. That's why Timothy must do the work of an evangelist. 
Isn't that why we at Acts 29 give ourselves to planting churches all across the world? Because we know that there are people in every corner of the earth who will have to stand before the living God on that day and give an account. And we want them to hear the good news so that that day is a good day and not a terrible day. In the gospel, Paul has reminded Timothy in chapter 1 verse 10 that death is abolished. Life and immortality are brought to light But these benefits are only available to people who hear this message and respond to it. If pastors lose sight of the future, we won't feel the urgency that we must feel to get this message out to the ends of the earth. Preach the Word in light of the future. Then Paul says, preach the Word in every season, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. What season does he have in view here? Well, is it the season that Timothy finds himself in, whether he feels up for preaching uh, or he doesn't really feel up for it? He's out of sorts. You know that preaching can be sometimes, if you do it, sometimes it can be energizing and invigorating. But often the weekly rhythm of preparing and delivering sermons feels like pushing a boulder up a hill. And Depending on what week it is, you'll know that even if you've managed to budget a little bit, just get your shoulder under it and just kind of budget up a little bit, something happens when you go to bed between Sunday night and Monday morning. It's back at the bottom of the hill again. (laughs) You know, don't you? That routine can wear the pastor out. I don't want to do that again. Sunday, Sunday was good. I went to bed, got up Monday morning, halfway up the hill. Where's my boulder? Here we go again. It's wearying, isn't it? And you can see, you can see, I think you see it in people when they've been going for a while. If they haven't, if they haven't settled those convictions, one and two, that actually they grow weary and they don't want to do that anymore. Or Timothy, probably doesn't love it if there are tensions in the church. You know what it's like when it's tough. Perhaps you've been in difficult pastoral situations with people, and you stand up to preach, and you look out, and you can see them flint-faced looking back at you. They close their Bible and set it on their lap. Good to see you. You know, don't you, there are plenty of reasons why the pastor may be out of season. Or is it the season that the church is in? They're responsive to sermons or they're disengaged or critical. When people in the church are coming and saying, do you know, can can we meet and have a chat? I've been thinking about your sermons. I mean, I, I like them as far as they go, but do we really need a sermon? You know, people are visual learners nowadays. What does the pastor do? Or is it the season that the wider society is in? Are they hostile to Christianity or somewhere, or positive or somewhere in between? Whose season is in view here? The answer is probably all three. And either way, it doesn't matter. Timothy's to commit himself to preaching God's Word, whether he feels like it or doesn't feel like it, whether he's weary or not, whether his church are hungry to learn or whether they're not. Whether the wider society loves it or whether the wider society are are putting placards out the front of the church, tell you to get out of town. 
Whatever the weather, you, preacher, are to keep preaching. In all seasons, whatever the weather, keep preaching. And then he says, keep going in all situations. Preaching applies in all situations. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Whether the need of the hour is reproof, whether that uh, word needs to be one of rebuke, whether it needs to be exhortation, the preaching of God's Word is how that should be accomplished. Whatever the situation, correcting wrong doctrine with true doctrine, rebuking ungodly behavior, encouraging weary saints to keep going in the face of opposition and false teaching, that is, tempting them to, 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 to swerve from the truth themselves, the Word is sufficient, remember, to accomplish the end to which it is addressed. And can I say, pastors, we need to include all three of those in the wider scope of our ministry. Some ministry doesn't ever address error. And we, we can tell why that is. It's hard. It's uncomfortable to reprove and rebuke other people. But then some ministry only seems to focus on correcting error. The tone of the ministry is, it's good to see you this morning. Look at verse 6. Look what it says. Those guys down the road. We know there are people like that. Paul's charge, however, is that the preaching that Timothy must implement must reprove false doctrine, rebuke ungodliness, and encourage and spur on those who are growing and making progress. Maybe a word to younger men this morning. Make sure there's plenty of encouragement in your ministry. It's easy to see people's faults. And if you're bright, if you're clever, you'll be able to find it easy to see problems in the church. But look for the encouragement and champion that where you see it. Don't confuse impatience for boldness in the pulpit. Don't confuse clarity or a prophetic edge for impatience. Here's the thing. When your four-year-old comes in from school and has, uh, has a picture, and, um, you know, in another context, you might describe it as a mess. <laughs> and they hand it to you, and they say, Daddy, it's for you. And you say, what is it? <laughs> they say, doggy. It's a doggy. And you go, you don't go, that's not a doggy. That's disgraceful. You need to grow up. <laughs> You don't, do you? You say, I love it. It's brilliant. Well done. Thank you. I'm going to put it on the wall. You try and encourage them. You don't want to crush their spirit. You want to encourage them. We have immature people in our churches that do stupid things. But we don't want to crush them. Adopt that approach with your church family. With all of this, remember that growth takes time. 
Timothy's ministry was to be one of reminder. Remind them of these things, he says, 2 verse 14, and it's that way for all of us as pastors. Reminder, reminder, reminder. We need to go back to the same truths again and again and again. Teach them without getting impatient. You see, he says, complete patience. It doesn't say some patience. Patience when you've had a good night's sleep and you're feeling good. It doesn't say occasional patience. Complete patience. This is I, this, is, this convicts me more than anything. If I could go back over the last eight years of the life of our church and change one thing, I'd change loads of things, but the one thing I'd change would be my, my tone of kind of, come on, I told you that. Why are you not doing it? I, I preached a sermon series on that. Come on. No. Encouragement and complete patience. You know what we need to do when we feel that sort of thing coming on? We must remember our need for the Lord's patience with us. How patient has God been with you in your life and in your ministry? We know what we should be doing. We know what we should be doing in our own lives, in our own discipleship, and we, yet we don't do it. Don't expect the impossible Just preach the Word in all these ways, and trust the Lord to do His work in your people's lives in His time. Preach the Word in all situations, and then finally, preach in all faithfulness. Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I wonder if that verse is actually a little bit of a concluding summary of everything that he's just said. There is no guarantee that the faithful pastor's ministry will bring revival. Many of us gather here this week from contexts where we've been laboring for for, uh, years, and the fruit has been very small. And it's discouraging sometimes when we come to a, a context like this, and we see others with big churches but there's no guarantee that faithfulness in, in the task will, will build a big church. There's no guarantee that faithful ministry will drive out false teachers overnight either. And when a preacher is clear, when he is prepared to reprove and rebuke in his sermon, sinful people don't like it. So even when he executes his responsibilities as he should, Timothy should expect the people will turn away wander off into myths, they'll wander off into anything. Some of the things that your people will leave the gospel for will make you just hold your head and say, what on earth? And when it happens, it's so discouraging and the temptation is to give up. Paul tells Timothy, no, keep your head. Keep your head. Keep going in all faithfulness. So, brothers, as we conclude… When people oppose you, keep preaching Christ. When they walk away from Christ, preach like an evangelist. And in the end, make sure that you fulfill your ministry. What he means by that? Finish the job you started. Quite simply, just don't quit. Remember, fantastic word yesterday morning, keep the coast in view and keep going. If you will preach well, your model is suffering, your material is Scripture, and your method is sermons keep going. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise You for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us.
thank you for the calling that you have placed on us to the task of preaching your sacred word. And we pray that we would follow the apostolic model. We would stand four square on your holy scripture. And we would preach your word as you would have us do in all faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.